To all who are weary, come and rest. To all who are weak, come and find strength. To all who are discouraged, come and find encouragement. And to all who sin, come and find mercy. Good morning, I'm Jamie, one of the pastors here. And it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. We'll be picking up where we left off last Lord's Day in verse 19. Luke chapter 20, verse 19. If you're new and you don't have a Bible, take one of the Bibles from the pew in front of you. And if you're new to the Bible, Luke chapter 20 can be found on page 879 of the church Bible, bottom right-hand corner, right under where it says, paying taxes to Caesar. We'll read there. So what I'll do is I'll read the whole section, which is the rest of the chapter, big long section this morning. Pray for the Lord's help on our time together, and then work through this passage a little bit at a time. In total, should be around 45 minutes or so. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question. Saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second. And the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, 
for they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that, dead, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Verse 41. And he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David then thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would open our eyes to the glories of your Son, Jesus, and our ears to his very words, for his are the words of eternal life. If there is something in this passage that I have missed, I pray, Lord, that you would bring it to all of our minds and let us see your Son, Jesus, anew. If there's something in my notes which is not helpful, I pray that your people would forget it, that all that we would see this morning would be the brightness of the glory of the image of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, our treasure, and our Lord. Amen. Jesus Christ is marvelous, yet they did not marvel. Jesus Christ is flawless, and yet they sought to find fault. His words are the words of eternal life, and yet they could not hear them. The angels of heaven can't take their eyes off him. And yet to these men, he was unimpressive. How can this be? It was their love for their own name which hid him from their view. They loved the recognition of men so that they couldn't see or recognize the Messiah of God. Luke tells us in verse 19, they feared the people. And Jesus explains what this fear of man looks like in verses 46 and 47. The fear of man is the relentless pursuit of validation. The fear of man produces men and women who are slaves to applause, who will do almost anything to be seen and to be heard. The fear of man turns otherwise strong men into lackeys who torturously strive for prominence. It produces a competition that ruins friendships. 
And in this unholy quest for adulation, it sorts precious image bearers of God into assets and liabilities. But worst of all, the fear of man blinds a man to the glory of God. To the extent to which eventually Jesus Christ himself becomes a threat to the cause. And so he must be cast aside. And that's what we see in the text before us. The point of this passage is to show that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the messenger of God, God from God, the sinless servant of God, the Savior sent to rescue sinners from their sin. And in the days leading up to the cross, our Lord faced opposition, opposition from the very men that he appointed to lead his people to his Son. And I'm afraid, dear ones, that we find ourselves strange bedfellows with these scribes, priests, and Sadducees, because for too often we revel in the praise of men. Too often we leverage ourselves in order to be seen by others and receive validation from them. And it is our self-love that blinds us to the glory of God in Christ. And so this morning, my one goal is to take you all to see Jesus Christ so that you would know that He, on His sinless back, carried the burden of sin and pride and self-seeking, and that His death and resurrection broke the back of the fear of man. And that in Him, dear ones, you can get off the treadmill. You can let go of this exhausting pursuit of validation. And that in Christ, you can walk with the confident assurance that God sees you. God hears you. God accepts you. And God is crazy about you. So here's the big idea. Jesus is the Messiah of God, the sinless Son of the living God, whose mercy and acceptance through grace breaks the power of the fear of man. So the enemies of Jesus set up traps in this passage to discredit him, to get him arrested, to cast him aside. Two traps. And the first one has to do with taxes. Let's read verses 19 and 20 again. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, but they couldn't. They thought that they perceived that he had, taught, he had told this parable, the parable that we considered last week, against them. But they couldn't lay their hands on him because they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere so they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authorities and jurisdiction of the governor. 
So last week, we studied the parable of the wicked tenants. And the scribes and the chief priests, they're not dumb. They knew that Jesus was telling this parable against them. So they flex. But their muscles aren't super impressive. They want to lay hands on Jesus and destroy Jesus, but they can't. Two things stand in their way. Number one, their fear of the people. And number two, their political impotence. And so they must do something different. They come up with a new tactic. They set a trap for him. They, can, they try to either get the people to turn from him or to get the government to turn on him. And so they send spies who pretend to be sincere to try and get Jesus to say something that's going to get him in trouble with the people or maybe get him in trouble with Rome. It's a very clever trap, this. But this is Jesus, so it's, it's, it's like trying to catch a lion in a mouse trap. Let's read verse 21 and 22 again. So they asked Jesus, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. We know that you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, on the surface, this is a brilliant tactic. They start with flattery. They call him teacher, which is a title of honor. Trying to get his guard down. I mean, you say everything right, Jesus. You aren't swayed by people's opinions, Jesus. You teach the way of God truly, Jesus. They're buttering him up. Trying to woo him into their trap. This kind of thing works on those who fear man. But Jesus fears no man. They're facing down a Spartan with squirt guns. Now, everything they say about Jesus is true. Everything he does say is true. He's not swayed by opinion. He teaches the God the way of God truly. Everything is true, but Jesus knows their heart. Besides, even every parent here knows they can spot flattery when it's happening. Like if your teenagers come to you and they're like, mom, dad, we know that you are good and that you do good and that you teach the way of God truly. Any parent's going to be like, whoa, whoa, I'm going to stop you right there. The answer is no. Whatever you have to ask, the answer is no. But here's the question they bring. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? That's the trap. And it's foolproof. Or so they thought. Now, maybe that, maybe that doesn't sound like much of a dangerous trap or a very clever question, but it, actually it is. A little bit of background here. The Roman Empire in the first century is... <laughs> It's way bigger than anything you or I have ever seen in our lifetime. All of modern-day Spain and France and Britain and Eastern Europe and Greece and Turkey and Syria and Lebanon and North Africa and Israel and Palestine, something like 20 to 25% of the world's population answers to one man, Caesar. This is nothing like we have ever seen. And around the time that Jesus is a teenager, Caesar requires the people to pay tribute to Rome. A, a, a tax, a denarius, one, one day's wages. And the people didn't like this, of course. In fact, there was a Jewish fellow named Judas of Galilee who led a revolt against Rome for this tax. And it didn't work out well for him. Uh, Rome came in and crucified everyone involved with him. Because this is what happens when you defy the might of Rome and you don't pay Rome their money. And here's the rub. 
for the Jews. These are the people of God. And they're living in the land that Yahweh had given to them, promised to them. And Rome comes in and takes over and forces them to pay tribute to Caesar, a wicked, godless pagan who's not only opposed to Yahweh, but who declares himself to be divine. And so this is the trap. If Jesus tells the people to pay the tribute, then he'll be viewed as an idolater, disloyal to Yahweh, disloyal to the Jewish people, funding a pagan government, pagan activities from a wicked government. But if he tells the people to refuse to pay the tribute, well, then Rome will be on him. He'll be an insurrectionist, and Rome will come and take care of him. And so the trap is set, and Jesus' hand is, is on the tripwire. Verse 23. But Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. We said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him and what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So denarius is a Roman coin. It was a silver coin stamped with the image of Caesar on it, along with the words Tiberius Caesar, the son of divine Augustus. And so here's Jesus Christ, God the Son, looking at a coin minted with the image of a man who calls himself the Son of God. And so the Lord just basically says, it has Caesar's face on it, so it must belong to Caesar, so give it back to him. It's stamped with his image, it's his coin, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then he adds, render to God the things that are God's. I think it was the early church father, Tertullian, who said it first, noticed that Caesar put his image on a coin, and God put his image on mankind. So sure, Caesar gets himself a silver circle, but God gets the whole person. Pay your tribute to Caesar with the coins bearing his image. And pay your tribute to God with the life bearing his. So Jesus tells the people, pay the tax. I mean, after all, Caesar is under God. God is above Caesar, has appointed Caesar. And under God, Caesar has given you roads and protection and peace and trade and a healthy economy. So pay the tax. Later on, the Apostle Paul would put it like this in Romans 13. Paul wrote, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul goes on. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So, 
The application to this, of course, this tax season, PBC, would be to pay your taxes. Oh, but the government is corrupt, Pastor. It's a wicked pagan government. Sure. And on every U.S. dollar, it says United States of America, so render to the United States of America what is United States of America. And let's not forget that two elect exiles being persecuted by Rome, by the Caesar, the Apostle Peter wrote, fear God, honor the emperor. Well, their trap fails. It's a mousetrap. He's a lion. Round one is a failure. So the chief priests and the scribes, they tap. And then another opponent enters the ring. The Lord's next opponents are some folks called the Sadducees. Let's read verse 27 down to 33. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a res resurrection, and they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there was seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her. Now, <laughs> to be honest, this trap feels a bit more like, you know, carnival mirrors, right? It's just a magic mirror thing. It's not really a minefield. It doesn't seem so dangerous. And so a little bit of background here might help. A few things to understand. The Sadducees. Uh, this is the one and only encounter that Jesus has with the Sadducees in the Gospel of Luke. The Sadducees are the richer, prettier, older cousins of the Pharisees. And they don't much like each other. The Sadducees, and religious people usually don't. The Sadducees are biblical literalists. They only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as Scripture. And they believed that what goes around comes around, sort of like you get what you pay for in life. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. That's what so if you were to, let's say, take a fundamentalist and a Buddhist and a humanist and a bunch of money and throw them in a blender and blend them all up, you'd get a Sadducee smoothie. That's what, it sounds gross, but that's what it is. Now, that's first. Second, their trap is designed to discredit Jesus by showing that his belief in an afterlife, in the resurrection, is ridiculous. So they come up with this scenario that there's a woman who was married and that her husband dies before they have any children. And, and that brings us to another background thing. That in the Torah, if a man dies without children, that man's younger brother was to marry that man's wife, and give her children, and that those children would then inherit the late brother's inheritance, his land, for example. So this was both a protection for the widow, and it was a way to keep the land in the family. And so the Sadducees come with this scenario, and in this silly scenario, the, second, uh, the wife's second husband, he dies, and then the third and the fourth, all the way down to the seventh before she dies. And this prompts a question. 
And it's not really the question that I would have in this scenario. My question would be, who keeps marrying this woman, right? Like how many funerals do you have to sit through before you find out there's one common denominator between all of your older brothers? You know, I mean, take her in for sure. Take care of her, but prepare your own meals and install a security system or something. But this is the tripwire. In the resurrection, Jesus, Mr. Smarty Pants, whose wife will she be? She's had seven husbands. And next comes Jesus' masterful response in verse 34. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. And here's the reason. They can't die anymore. Because they're equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the day that are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all lived him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And they stopped asking him questions. So here we can learn that Jesus believes that there is an afterlife and there will be a resurrection. He taught about this back in chapter 14. And the Lord explains that there are two ages. There is this age and there is the age to come. And in this age, people get married. But in the next age, they don't. And the reason that there's no marriage in heaven is rather obvious. Because in heaven, you can't die. Of course. That makes total sense to me. That's going to be my answer. Here's what I think Jesus is teaching. There is something about marriage that is unique to this age that makes it unnecessary in the next. You see, marriage is a parable of the gospel. Marriage isn't the thing. Marriage points to the thing. And the reason that marriage is meant for this age and not the next age is that in the next age, you can't die. And marriage is all about dying. Someone's like, you've been telling me. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. The way that Jesus Christ laid down his life, he died for the good and the benefit of his people, the church, is a picture, is pictured by the way that a man, a husband, lays down his life for his wife, dying to his wants and needs for the good and benefit of her. And the way that the church dies to herself Submitting to Christ is pictured in the way that a wife dies to herself and submits to her husband. And so marriage is in some ways about death. It's literally designed to kill you. The husbands, wives understand that either you die or your marriage dies. Those are your only two options. The healthiest marriages 
the ones which have the clearest portrayal of the gospel are the ones where the husband and wife constantly die to themselves for the good and benefit of their spouse. The husband studies the Lord Jesus and in like manner nourishes and cherishes and cares for and prays for and brings his wife to himself. The wife models the church in the way that she honors and respects and submits to her husband. And, and, and through the two of them, the gospel is painted portrayed through them. And this is what makes marriage no longer necessary in heaven. Marriage is a picture of what heaven is in reality. So when you bought your house, you stopped looking at pictures of your house on Realtor.com because you're living in the house. And so in heaven, there will be no marriage because we'll be living what marriage is meant to portray. So in heaven, there's no sin. And therefore, there's no death. That we will be like the angels. We will be sons of God. We will be sons of the resurrection. We can't die. There'll be no more dying to our selfish desires in heaven because your desires will be perfectly pure. You will never be withheld anything that you want because in heaven all that you want is Christ who is given to you in limitless measure. And so this is why there is no marriage in heaven. And then the Lord turns his response back on the Pharisees and their bad theology. You guys say that there's no afterlife because you can't see it in the Torah, but you're not seeing it there. And let me show you, and Jesus points to the passage about the burning bush. When Yahweh revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, Ephesians, Exodus 3, 6. He said, I am the God of, not I was the God of. Like if someone comes to you and introduces themselves and says, I was a friend to your mother, you would understand them to mean one of two things that they're no longer a friend of your mother or that your mother is no longer alive. But if they come to you and they say, I am a friend of your mother, then your mother has to be alive or they're a weirdo. <laughs> so when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's saying, they're still alive. And so I'm still their God, not I was. I am. Also, don't miss this fact that Jesus Christ makes a case for his eschatology by standing, his, his end times, his understanding of the end, by standing on the very words of Scripture. But not just the words themselves, the tense of the words. No one has a higher view of Holy Scripture than the Lord Jesus well, the Sadducees probably didn't like his answer, but the scribes did because an enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they, they said, you did a good job. Good job, Jesus. You passed. And then no one dared ask him any more questions. But the Messiah has a question 
or two of his own. Let's read verse 41. But Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ, the Messiah, is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And Jesus is asking a somewhat complicated question about the text of Psalm 110 which we read at the opening. And the question is regarding the identity of the Messiah, the Christ. By the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know, Mary and Joseph Christ didn't give birth to Jesus Christ. Christ is his title. It means Messiah, the anointed one. So Jesus is asking the question about the Messiah. The Bible had foretold that the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent to save, would be from the lineage of King David. He would be a son of David. And the question Jesus is asking here is, how, can then, how is it that David calls his son his Lord? You see the issue here. The greater gives birth to the lesser. Like King Charles doesn't say to Prince William, my Lord. Because he's above him. And so David, doesn't make sense why David would say to his son, my Lord. In Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord. Now literally the text reads, Yahweh says to my Adonai, my Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. Which, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but in your Old Testament, when you're reading the Old Testament of the Bible, and you come across the word LORD, and it's all in caps. Have you ever seen this before? This is the translator, English translator's way of telling you that that's the proper name of God, Yahweh. And then when it's L-O-R-D with the lowercase O-R-D, that's Adonai, usually. So, if you look this up in Psalm 110, it's going to be all caps. The LORD, Yahweh, says to my LORD. Lowercase. And so the question is then, how is it that King David is calling this person his Lord? A Lord who is distinct from the Lord, who sits at the Lord's right hand. And so again, Jesus is using particular words to make his theological argument to you. Jesus is asking, who is this person? Who is the son of David, who is also the Lord of David? They didn't know the answer because they didn't know the answer. David saw what these men could not see. David saw the Messiah who is God, who is God from God. Messiah, the Christ, is Jesus. And he is the man standing right in front of them, and they cannot see him, for the fear of man has blinded their eyes. So, friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you just have to wonder if there is something in the scribes and chief priests and Sadducees that you resonate with. I wonder if you are like them. I wonder if you have a fear of man like they do. You might not think that you do. You might even say to yourself, I don't care at all what anyone thinks of me. 
What is that true though? So then why are you bothered so much when you don't get credit for something that you've done? And why does it bother you so much when people misrepresent you? Why then do you always have to have the last word? So friend, be honest with yourself. You probably care more about what people think than you're letting on. And this is the fear of man. And your fear of man is keeping you from seeing the glory of Christ. Let me ask you this question. Does it even bother you at all when God doesn't get credit for what He has done? Does it bother you at all when God is misrepresented? If you're brave enough to be honest with yourself, you'll realize that you've done this to Him your whole life. All of us have. All of us have preferred our own glory to God's glory. We have all cared about what others think more than what God thinks. And this is why we'll go out of our way. We'll even pull overtime to make sure that we get credit for what we have done. To make sure that our image is carefully curated to others so that they will respect us, love us, esteem us but we won't lose an ounce of sleep over whether God gets credit for what He deserves. And so that makes us all very little different than the scribes, chief priests, and Sadducees. And each of us must turn from this sin of belittling Christ and turn to God for mercy. Jesus went to the cross He gave his life for sinners like you and me, and God raised him from the dead on the third day. And when you turn to him in faith, God promises to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you of unrighteousness, and to grant to you eternal life. Sinner, do that today. Take that Bible home with you. Read the whole gospel of Luke this week and come back next Sunday and learn more about the comfort and the forgiveness that you can find in Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus requires real change. When we turn from our sin, today in the catechism class we looked about, we talked about repentance, which is turning from your sin and turning towards the Lord. When you repent, you turn from your sin and you turn to the Lord. So you're turning away from the kind of life that you led before Jesus saved you, the kind of life described in the closing verses of our passage This morning, this is where we'll end our time together. Verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses And for pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The scribes in Jesus' day stood face to face with God in the flesh, and they couldn't see Him because they preferred the praise of man to the praise of God. They craved affirmation. They were greedy for prominence and distinction. 
working tirelessly after that image, carefully curated image made so that others would like them, accept them, affirm them, respect them. And so they couldn't see Jesus. The cure to the fear of man is the love of God in Christ. So friends, pray that the Lord would open our eyes to the glory of Christ. Pray that God would grant us faith to believe all that He has promised. Because once you see all that Jesus is, once you see all that He has done, once you see all that you have in Him, the shackles of the fear of man fall off. And you're free. And so then you can take verse 46 and verse 47 and you can flip it and reverse it. In Christ, God's people count others more significant than themselves. Because God has received them, they love making others feel welcomed and seen. Because God has made them His own, they delight in giving distinction to others. Because God has built them up, they build up one another. Because they have been forgiven, they forgive easily, joyfully, and freely. Because Christ has made them His own, they go out of their way to make sure that everyone feels loved by Him. Because God loved them at their worst, they're quick to praise, slow to criticize. Jesus sought them out when they were the lowest and the least, and so they just naturally seek out the same. They, they just want to give that seat of distinction away. Take the mic. Let us hear what you have to say. They love because they've been loved. And there is no fear in love. And so they give their lives to freely and joyfully seeing Christ exalted so that the praise of his name would resound in all the earth. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to make this true of all of us? Our God in heaven, you are our good and gracious Father. And we come to you through your Son, Jesus, our Lord, and our soon-coming King. And we confess, O oh Lord, that we have belittled Jesus in our lives. We have seen his glory as a threat to our own. And when given the choice between making much of him or making much of ourselves, we've way too often chosen ourselves. And in this we have sinned. We confess, O oh Lord, that we care more about the opinions of man than we do about the mind of God. We spend all kinds of effort in curating a, an image with others that's righteous and respectable. 
while at the same time neglecting the sins that live unchecked in our own hearts. Lord, you know there is a pride in all of us, a monster that refuses to be rebuked and exposed, and we keep it alive in that closet of ours. Lord, have mercy on us. Enable us to trust you and to be honest and to hand to Jesus all of these sins, even those in the closet, even our pride. Give us grace to confess this wickedness this week. Let us see who we might confess it to, a trusted brother or sister. And Lord, set us free from the fear of man. And let us be a truly honest people, a truly a gospel people, fearless in our pursuit of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. And please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your assurance of pardon comes from 1 John chapter 1, where we read, But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Would you sing?